0: Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast.
1: And it is just a little bit after 4 o'clock and it's John Bartlett for Tuesday home time until 6 o'clock this evening. Celebrations of the anniversary of Eureka, 164 years later with Shirley Winton from Spirit of Eureka. Gabby and Kate talking about Western Sahara. That's Gabby Alamin and Kate Lewis from the Australia Western Sahara Association. Malaysia's Mahathir approves the increase in radioactive waste. To delete an environmental activist. A segment from Palestine Remembered re the bombing of Gaza, a young woman here in Melbourne trying to keep in touch with her family in Gaza. And the decision at VCAT, re the toxic free Faulkner case with Brian Snowden. But first Mr Kevin Healy.
2: A week, Jane Listener, when in its role as the guardian of our values and interests, the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin continues its relentless campaign to convince us we got the last state election all wrong. Despite its same relentless campaign to set us straight then, a getting-it-wrong for which it has never forgiven us, converting its front page for four years into a Dan pejorative saga. Dan, the socialist state big supremo whom we've all noticed, has posed a major threat to the greatest little economic order of them all. Well, a not-so-subtle change in the past week or so. Okay, Lord Rupert hasn't relaxed his Dan pejorative mission, but a new enemy of the state. A few clues. Headlines in the past week or so. Exclusive first election scandal. All over front page, caught green-handed. And guess what colour the green's in. Labour hating green, now an ALP candidate. Greens wrapper past, And the balance report. See if we can work out where this is going. A foul-mouthed Greens candidate vying for state parliament. Well, need we go on? Thank goodness we've got Lord Rupert to warn us of all this. Then the little bald-headed bloke who used to be big Canberra supremo back in those dark ages. Spray for growing Greens. The Greens are the uh, true extremists of true Blue Aussie politics. Oh, if only, listener. no. And that's what worries me about the uh, possibility of having a Green Labour government, because in the end, the uh, extremists in those alliances always have their way, like they really do. Well, he'd know from experience his government was a perfect example of that. Then Friday, major parties launch attack on Greens. An opposite page, popular Labour figure Anthony Albanese has launched a passionate plea to voters to return a government minister in a stinging attack on the Greens. Yesterday, P1, election exclusive 1, Labour's baby bonus. Election exclusive 3, judges to face music. Is a socialist and caring business class party's policies smack in the middle between them election exclusive to fresh greens crisis in other words and just maybe we picked up a theme here lord rupert knows the greens are so extreme that they're even worse than the pejorative dan and the socialists as if as we've learned over four years we thought anyone could be but but they are Unlike the court green-handed P1, a caring business class candidate sprung for anti-Islamic rants and forced to quit, although she'll be on the ballot paper, made it onto left-handed P10. Well, we can't say Lord Rupert didn't report it. And last week, a Greens-dominated inner city council is under fire for hosting a festive secular season event featuring people singing carols against coal. Carols like, we wish you a coal-free future and, oh, come all ye miners, a disgrace. And then down, down in the important report where the has come under fire came from, that other overseer of our values, the Institute of Public, Very, Very Private Affairs. It is miserable to suck the fun out of Christmas and replace it with cringeworthy propaganda. The so-called Harmony for Humanity choir is like the Grinch that stole Christmas. So, converting carols for your own use is sucking the fun out of. So, therefore, uh still waiting for Lord Rupert and the Institute of Public, very, very private affairs to give us their sucking the fun out of view of this ubiquitous ad for one of the big two supermarkets, reworking a well-known carol to inform us we can only enjoy Christmas if we feed ourselves at its exorbitant over-the-top prices. Apparently that's a proper use, injecting the fun into Christmas. Well, certainly into which shareholders' Christmases. The other duopoly mob are promoting the urgency of order by a certain time for same-day delivery. Urgent because there's only 24 more shopping days to Christmas. In the satire can't compete, why bother saying it, department, this carry-on about an Indonesia in other people's business free trade for the filthy rich agreement versus true blue-wazi policy read the capital of Zion. Leading our big supremo Scuttlebem more or less son and other government experts to state categorically, looking very sincere and concerned, true blue-wazi must not allow other countries to determine our foreign policy. Now, listener, I'm sure you can see where this one's going. Why bother stating the obvious? Because Scuttlebem, when he announced the policy a few days before a particular by-election in an electorate with a particular demography, assured us there was absolutely no connection whatever between changing our position on the capital of Zion and the particular by-election in an electorate with a particular demography. And Scuttlebeam is our big supremo, and big supremos always tell the truth. And not just our big supremo, but a dedicated follower of the dear baby Jesus. So Scuttle would never not tell the truth. Leaving only the most cynical, and we certainly don't fit into that department, listener, would believe there just might have been some loose connection, like a direct relationship between the particular electorate and the particular policy. And given we must not allow other countries to determine our foreign policy, no connection whatever with the decision of our very, very, very close friend, the U.S. of, just coincidentally announcing the same policy oh dear there i said the obvious didn't i sorry just couldn't help myself no connection which would make our very 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 close friend the us of and true blue aussie as pretty much the only countries with this policy if the policy scuttled them announced is the policy because now we learn the policy he announced isn't the policy which incidentally worked a treat in the particular election to which it was totally unrelated isn't the policy but is up for review by someone or someone's or other and scuttle will announce the result of that review when the dust settles on not allowing Indonesia in to determine our foreign policy and we can safely make our own decision with no pressure applied by the free trade for the filthy rich agreement and anyone who likes a bet would love to get odds on which way that's going to go Federally, the Greens are just as dangerous as they are here in Victoria. They have promised to back evil unions calling for industry-wide bargaining rights, as the True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review commented, putting pressure on the Socialist Party to broaden its support for the controversial reform. Let's hope for the good of all of us, for the good of the greatest little economic order of them all, the socialists reject this wedging, because wages are out of control. Same page Thursday, wage growth clocked at its fastest since 2015. The economy experienced wage growth of 0.6% in the September quarter. A meteoric 0.6%. Any wonder workers are whooping it up. Like those independent contractors enjoying the fees they charged food or a starve, forced to close down and head back to Germany. Coincidentally, just a couple of days before the tax office declared all those independent contractors charging their exorbitant fees were Wait for it. Workers. Employees who should receive wages and conditions like holidays and sick leave and superannuation. Oh. And worse, it's estimated Foodora Starve owes those workers 7.5 million real fee. A real figure. Any wonder they had to get out of the country. How selfish of these workers forcing the company, providing them with a contract and filling in their, their time to flee, taking the 7.5 mil with them. Okay, we can go to the directors, I hear you say. Well, small problem there. Only one director was resident, resident, a 23-year-old accountant, and she's also now in Germany, the home country of this fine company. Also because of these selfish, selfish workers. Thankfully, the public purse can pick up a bit of the debts, but when Fedora starve has global revenue of only $1.2 billion, well, we can't expect it to pick up the bill although explain the country would indicate it'd love to do it if it only could. These, of course, are the very lazy avaricious workers our Minister for Caring Business Class Relations, Kelly are workers so evil, tells us we are who are double dipping and ripping off their poor caring employers like Fudora Stav. This is yet another example of how workers demanding wages and conditions can so damage their caring employer. Well, trying to claim their caring employer is their caring employer. That most sensitive of men, U.S. of Big Supremo Donald or the Poor, has heeded the advice of advisers that he not listened to tapes of the murder of good, good Saudi, evil, evil journalist Jamal Khashoggi because it's a suffering tape, a, a terrible tape. And Donald said the good old CIA conclusion that Donald's very, very, very close friend, the crown prince, ordered the murder was very premature. Well, will anybody really know? Donald mused, and Donald is a Donald who really knows what he really knows unlike Donald Rumsfeld the Arabs, like he was the only person in the whole world who knew evil, evil, evil Iran was breaking the anti-nuclear agreement it signed and must be punished and anyway his very, very, very close friend the Crown Prince agreed with Donald that the evil murdered was yet another purveyor of fake news, so really he got what he deserved Finally, getting what he doesn't deserve, the Witch Bank, which used to be our bank's Supremo, Matt, come and clean, facing the Her Most Gracious Majesty's Commission. Same day, True Blue Aussie Catalyst Review headline that the bank would turn fully green by 2030. And I thought, Matt's bringing all that forward, because sitting in the furnace of the witness box, he was already looking very, very green. Good afternoon.
1: And Miss McKennahead. Healy, Kevin Healy it is, Mr Kevin Healy, he'll be back at 9 o'clock tomorrow morning for his hour-long program, The Limits, with a a few friends along the way. It's 13 minutes past 4 o'clock, and you're listening to Melbourne Community Radio 3CR. The 3rd of December 1854, a day which many say changed the course of history in Victoria, if not Australia. I'm joined on the phone by Shirley Winton from the group Spirit of Eureka. Shirley, the focus of this interview will be on the 3rd of December 1854 and what followed. but to understand that we need to know the situation politically and socially in the days, even years prior to that day. The big events happened before the 3rd of December that
3: led to the establishment of this stockade, which was crushed by the British troops. But the situation for, for probably for about five, six years, or maybe even more, there was a huge unrest on the gold fields in Ballarat, Crestwick, but also in New South Wales. The big issue was that the miners, most of them were poor working people who actually came from overseas. Many of them were ex-convicts who were sent to Australia. Others came to Australia, particularly after the 1848 Upheavals, revolutions in in Europe uh, which are against the injustice, against the oppression of the European government. So you had a situation where they came to Australia on the goldfields which was, Australia at that time was a British colony. It was ruled by British authorities and British army was basically suppressing the people mainly on the goldfield. The miners had to pay A license fee, and this license fee was quite exorbitant, so they had to have a license to be able to mine for gold, which is basically, you know, their living. They relied on, on gold, on finding gold. It was the basis of their living condition. The licenses were very severely imposed, so the troops were, the British troops, or mainly British troops, were sent on the gold fields a very regular basis to check that the miners had their licences and their licences were quite expensive. Those that didn't have a licences were either bashed up or they were thrown into jail. They were evicted from the from the gold fields. So it was a very violent imposition of the licences. The other aspect of the licences is, is that the squatters, for instance, weren't paying taxes at all. So you had a situation which is not really that not that different. Maybe in um, only in content it was the same, but maybe in the severity it wasn't as intense where you had the squatters weren't paying taxes and they had huge huge sections of land which, which were given to them by the british colonialists who dispossessed their aboriginal people at the same time this, the british authority severely punished and oppressed the aboriginal people in the process of removing forcefully and violently removing the first nations people from the land so you had that this situation there was brewing very intensely. Some of the actual the participants in the gold fields were charters. that came from England. who had a very strong social justice outlook. So there was a, a, a real very strong class content in that on the gold fields you had the, the British colonial authorities that were oppressing, most of them were working people who were seeking a livelihood through mining on the gold fields. In November 1854, the miners got together and Peter Lailo was one of the one of the leaders and so was Raffaello Caboni, who's um, an Italian. So they, with the leadership of, of Peter Lailo and Raffaello Caboni and several others, they mounted a Eureka flag and the Eureka flag representing the Southern Cross of the miners. That represents a true the true flag of working people at that time in the mining fields. It was a flag of defiance. It was a flag to defy the oppressive British authority. It was a flag for a vision for a fairer and better society. They put up a number of demands. The rebel miners, which included a vote in parliament since they were going to pay taxes. It included, they called actually for an Australian Republic or removal of of the colonial British authority. There was a whole list of demands which represented the sentiments, expressed the sentiments for a much fairer and just society. So the, the flag was raised on the 29th of November and the miners and the rebels um, formed a circle around the, around the flag. and an the, the iconic painting picture of the rebels circling the Eureka flag and raising their fists in solidarity with each other and declaring declaration which I think most people know is I call on my fellow diggers irrespective of nationality, religion or colour to salute the Southern Cross as the refuge of all oppressed from all countries on earth. The other aspect about the 29th of November and generally about the Eureka Stockade is that there were 20 different nationalities, cultures and religions that were involved and again, the declaration by Italian-born Raffaello Caboni that highlights the, you know, um, reveals the multicultural, that this is where multiculturalism was born, the Australian multiculturalism was born at the Eureka Stockade Rebellion. That's, again, the famous quote, I call on my fellow diggers, irrespective of nationality, religion or colour, to salute the Southern Cross as the refuge of all oppressed from all countries on earth. Then on the 3rd of December, in the middle of the night, or very early in the morning, when the the stockade had a smaller number of defenders, most of them were asleep, hundreds of troopers were sent in to crush the um, stockade. And it was a very bloody suppression or oppression against the the rebels. And the rebels had huge support amongst them, amongst other miners and generally in the community. The actual participation of the rebels, I think there were about... So the the actual stockade was being manned or or staffed by over 300, 300 to 400 rebels, and most of them were miners, local miners in Ballarat. The British authorities captured some of the, um, the miners, the rebels, but when it went to trial... There were huge protests in Melbourne, in the city of Melbourne, day after day, which involved, um, in one one case, I think two or three days running, there were 10,000, more than 10,000 on the streets of Melbourne protesting against the charges, the charges against the rebels, and also about the suppression of the Eureka stockade. The pressure was so enormous that they couldn't even, that that the British authorities couldn't even get witnesses to come up, come and, as part of the the court case in the end at the, after about a week i understand from what i've read all the charges were dropped and the rebels were released and that's another that's the other aspect of the of the eureka rebellion that you know we don't hear as much about is that the power of that of the mass movement the fact that the power of the community coming together and fighting against injustice and in this case the imprisonment and the charges and the charges were pretty severe they were charges of treason which um, i understand were included you know hanging capital punishment so that's the other aspect of the rebellion that's that's really is significant and probably is equally significant as the the rebels hoisting the flag for rights of ordinary working people i should also say that this is where the very first seeds of Australia's union movement were sown um, and continued to grow and um, Eureka flag was flown at the 1858 struggle for an 8 hour day was continued to, to fly in many struggles in the early 1890s, particularly in North Queensland by the shearers by the miners, so the shearers union and right throughout the 20th century the purpose of holding this annual event so we've been holding this event for now 10 years commemorating the anniversary of this stockade we pay honor to and and keeping alive the memory and the inspiration of of a very momentous event in the history of australia's working class struggles for justice and democratic rights and for independence and at that time the eureka rebels called for independence from british colonialism. And the second reason why we're holding this event annually is to keep that collective fighting spirit alive today and continue that proud legacy of the uprising. Now, many of the issues on which Eureka rebels took a stand 164 years ago are still being fought for today in many workplaces and community struggles. And so, you know, not all have been realised there's still some way to go. You know, the fight for the democratic rights, workers' rights, equality, social justice, republic for uh, an Australian republic in, in different forms has different interpretations. They're still as relevant today. So that embryonic fight started at the Eureka, at the Eureka Stockade. And Eureka Stockade has been maligned and it's always, there are times when the powers that be tried to co-opt it into a, sort of a a, um, dinosaur event that has no relevance to today's world, to today's Australia, but it has as much relevance as it did and important as it did
1: then. Evening is the 29th of November, 164 years later. What have you got planned for the night? Okay, this year's 164th
3: anniversary. The theme is democratic and workers' rights under attack. The fight continues. So it's the continuing the theme, the struggle that the Eureka rebels started in 1854 that really have not been fully realised or fully achieved, that it's, it continues today. And we're taking up the flag, we're taking up the mantle of continuing that fight for Australia's working people. So in line with, with the, the theme, as speakers on democratic and workers' rights, as speakers are Lydia Thorpe. People know Lydia, she's a long-time indigenous activist first aboriginal woman in victorian parliament and also greens mlc and she'll speak on the 230 year long fight by australia's first people against colonialism and the suppression of their rights as the original owners and caretakers of, the, of this land so whilst we commemorate the importance of eureka in parallel to that struggle for democratic rights of ordinary people has always been and has, al- has always in many ways overshadowed the struggle of the Indigenous people for their rights. She'll also speak on the long struggle for treaty. That is part of the... If we're going to talk about really meaningful, genuine democratic rights. It's not just the, you know, the, the right to, to vote, uh, to go to Parliament and vote once every three years. The other speakers are Greg Barnes is a Democrat, democratic rights lawyer and president of the Australian Lawyers Alliance. And he will speak on the erosion of the democratic rights in Australia today. And they have certainly accelerated, as people know, over the last few years. By way of background, too, uh, Greg Barnes. Greg is also is one of the lawyers representing Julian Assange and Witness K in the East Timor CK. So he's got a lot of depth and deep commitment to democratic rights and civil liberties. We've got a long list that he will just mention as a, as an indication, illustration of the erosion of this of the attacks on our democratic rights. There's the ISDS in the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and ISDS, which gives power to multinational corporations to override the the laws of and conditions of and the rights that have been won by working people in sovereign countries like Australia. There's the espionage bill. The, there's obviously the refugees and the immigration. There's the encryption laws and there's the militarisation of police and increasing police powers and the increased powers in stop and search. And more recently, the Andrews government, people may know in Victoria, has um, pushed through a divisive anti association laws that will give police more powers or excessive powers to issue anti-association notices which is telling people that's including children as young as 14 who they can and can't be friends with or spend time with so that actually opens the door to quite severe potential for state fascism there's also the obviously the anti-terror laws which are all tied in with and being used as a as a bit of a camouflage to enable them to bring a lot of these anti-democratic laws And the final speaker will be Dave Noonan, and people know Dave Noonan as the National Secretary of the CFMMU, Construction in General, and he will speak on their tax on unions and the working class (coughs) with focus on construction unions um, and the fight back that they mounted against the ABCC. The emphasis will be on banning of the Eureka flag on building sites. People may remember in 2007, just before the for the federal elections, and right at the tail end of the "Your Rights at Work" campaign, the Howard government—I think he threatened—or maybe there was an actual legislation passed. I can't remember, but it certainly looked like a bill was going to be passed to ban the Eureka flag being flown in any workplaces. And there was a huge outpouring of indignation, and the, on the eve of the, the elections, the spirit of Eureka with the ETU, the CFMEU, and Various unions. We organise a big rally opposing the, the banning of the Eureka flag and called, saying our flag is banned. Time to fight back. And after the election, obviously the flag, you know, the, that that bill was withdrawn. But then it came back again early this year in February when the um, it's, not, it's not the Morrison government. I get my brain just gets a bit confused. Turnbull government on behalf of the of the big big developers and big construction industries declared that the Eureka flag will be banned on building sites. So again, there was a huge outrage, the the building unions defied these threats, they continue to fly the Eureka flag, so now it looks like they've kind of stepped back for the moment, that'll be part of Dave Noonan's speech, and I should say that um, every year the Eureka anniversary we have an award. Uh, last year's award went to the Longford workers, the year before to the CUB workers, and this year the award is to the National CFMMU Construction and General Division for standing up for workers' rights and defending the Eureka flag. And I should say that the award is a surprise. It's, it's quite powerful, um, and it comes from, uh, from one of the families of the Longford workers. So, and then at the end there will be the oath of allegiance, and the oath of allegiance will be presented by Dave Noonan, Kevin Bracken, who's been one of the founding members of the, the Spirit of Eureka and, and MUA member now, and also uh, Margaret Williamson, who's the um, a descendant of the Eureka rebels. I should also add that Corinne Grant is the MC for the for the evening, and people know Corinne. Uh, is uh, very progressive and very outspoken public person. Um, she's a comedian, but now she's also a lawyer, and she's spoken um, outspoken on the on the issue of refugees and democratic rights generally. The event will be held at the MUA in, at the MUA offices in um, uh, 46 to 54 Island Street. Between six and seven is dinner. You really need people really need to to book. Dinner. We've already had over 100 bookings for dinner. It's $20 for waged, $10 unwaged and concession. It's a buffet style meal, meal and it's vegetarian and gluten free. And it's and it's going to be the caterers are putting on a quite a quite a feast. Speakers will start at 7 o'clock, and it should finish probably by by 9 o'clock. There'll be there's a bar at the MUA. As people would know, but for those wishing dinner um, it is advisable to book as soon as possible so you can either contact i'll give you um, a mobile number zero four seven six two three four two three two or there's an email for information and you know to make a booking it's s o e dinner it's s o e d i w n e r at protonmail dot com also find it on Spirit of Eureka website, www.spiritofeureka.org.
1: Thanks for all that, Shirley. And just finally, does anyone know where the flag still is?
3: Well, my last understanding is that it was um, still in the Art Gallery in
1: Ballarat. And we hope it still is in the Art Gallery at Ballarat. That's Shirley Winton from Spirit of Eureka. Let's hear a rendition of the song for the Eureka Stockade by David Rovix
4: From every corner of the world they came from all around when in 1851 they struck gold upon the ground every voyage was a long one months upon the stormy sea Some to seek their fortune, others escaping slavery. What they found on the gold fields was ruled by brutish thugs. Discrimination and taxation mixed with swinging billy clubs. The gold was getting scarcer and cops were getting worse. The diggers burned their licenses and vowed to end this curse. They swore an oath beneath the Southern Cross. They'd stand together and break the license laws. From twenty different nations they gathered here as one In Ballarat, beneath the southern sun The Crown tried to divide them, giving preference to some The diggers wouldn't have it, they said it's all of us or none They built a stockade, while the redcoats massed nearby And they heard the miners shouting We're ready now to die. The rebel miners waited for whatever lay in store. And on one December morning in 1854, the Redcoats attacked the camp. Dozens there would fall amongst these brave gold diggers who'd risen to the call. They swore an oath beneath the Southern Cross. They'd stand together and break the license laws. From twenty different nations they gathered here As one in Ballarat beneath the southern sun The army thought it was over and things would go there But when 15,000 miners rallied a month later on the day The Crown conceded everything, all of their demands They'd won an end to license fees, the right to vote and land So here's to Joe and Charlie, Waller and the rest They drew the battle lines and put crown rule to the test. The diggers may have lost the battle, but they quickly won the day. And those shots fired in Victoria were heard 10,000 miles away. They swore an oath beneath the Southern Cross. They'd stand together and break the license laws. From 20 different nations, they gathered here as one, in Ballarat, beneath the Southern Sun. They swore an oath beneath the Southern Cross. They'd stand together and break the license laws. From twenty different nations, they gathered here as one in Ballarat beneath the Southern Sun.
1: And that was the unmistakable voice of... David Rovix and his song for Eureka coming up on the 3rd of December. But the night at the MUA is the 29th of November.
0: And let's make 3CR the only source of information to an information-starved, dumbed-down Australian community. Written, authorised and spoken by Neil Mitchell.
1: Next to Western Sahara, and I'm joined by two members of the Australian Western Sahara Association, Gabby Alamin from Western Sahara and Kate Lewis from here in Melbourne. I'd like you both to talk about the yearly marathon that's held in the desert of Algeria nearby to the refugee camps on Western Sahara Day, which is the 29th of February. Have either of you been there when it's run? Unfortunately, since the marathon started,
5: I am always away on this month specifically, like in winter. I am always uh, studying or something. But I do see... In the media I do see the videos and the photos so runners come from all over the world including Sahrawis and Sahrawis who come from the occupied territories of Western Sahara they run
1: and usually it's for a good cause and you've been there Kate when it's been on have you I also haven't actually witnessed it
6: but like Gabby I've also seen videos and photographs and and heard the account from two eyewitnesses that came back to Australia and told us about it. I understand it's a very challenging race among marathons. There are marathons and marathons and this is a really challenging one because it's in the desert. It is, as Gabby said, the winter for for them, but it's still pretty hot and they have to be really careful about dehydration and so there are uh, little posts along the way where people can get uh, extra water when they need it so that's one aspect but the the ground itself is quite rough really there are little pebbles and rocks there's no paved street like many marathons that are run in Cities like we have had in Melbourne or the London Marathon or any of New York, any of the big famous cities. It's nothing like that. And so I think it's probably quite hard on the feet. They would have to take care not to to acclimatise themselves and not get blisters and all that sort of thing. Children also
1: take part, I believe. Is that correct? I think so, yes.
6: It's a shorter Mm. run for the children, of course. I mean, as well as the marathon, there's I don't know, a a five and a ten kilometre and maybe a longer one. For the children, it will just be a short run.
5: You know, from the video that I saw, there is always water offered, like in between. So people helping so much. Uh, Recently, they made some roads, especially in the wilayas. And in the the road connecting some wilayas, like um, Rabuni and Smara, these mm. are the
1: refugee camps.
5: In the refugee camps,
6: mm. yes. There are four refugee camps and they are named after the cities of Western Sahara. So El Ayoun, the capital, has got its mirror in the camps. The, the other ones are Samara, which is a, a city quite close to the border. It's it's the closest city to the camps. Then there's uh, Auxerd and Another one called Dahla, that is the furthest one. And in Western Sahara, Dahla is also the r- furthest away city.
5: And there is a Bujdur. Bujdur also, it's, right. a, it's a new
1: wilaya. in the refugee camps. Is that because the population is expanding?
5: Yes, definitely. Yes, the population is growing. Typically, Sahrawi's family have large numbers, so uh, the population is growing.
1: Let's go to Madrid What's been happening in the last few days?
5: Yes, so in Madrid, there, um, the Sahrawis and the Spanish supporters, they organized a march, and they did it to um, not really celebrate, but to remind the Spanish government of their responsibility after they signed the Madrid Agreement, which basically divided Western Sahara between uh, Morocco and Mauritania.
6: There was also a big effort to make it known that the people marching strongly disagreed with the position Spain was taking in the European Union on wishing to renew the trade agreement with Morocco to violate the finding of the European Court of Justice which had said that Western Sahara is a distinct, separate and distinct place and cannot be included any trade agreement. The Spanish as everybody knows, love fish and seafood, and they want to continue fishing on the coast of Western Sahara, which they've been doing, well, according to us, and now it's clear illegally because Morocco was not in their gift to give them the permission to do this. So uh, there's a bit of a stalemate really happening in the European Union at the moment about whether to pass this agreement. It's been through one hurdle, but it's got other hurdles to go through before it's actually implemented.
5: Just the numbers who are, you know, protesting, like, they are in thousands. According to the news, there are 5,000, and last year there were 7,000. A lot of people are supporting the Sahrawis.
1: And also in Germany, what's happening with fish in Germany,
6: or oh, oh, fish meal? Yes, fish meal. Now, that's another thing, you see, with the... The bycatch or any of the fish that can't be used for other purposes, they make into fish meal. It can be used in many purposes, uh, fish, uh, uh, pet food, and I'm not even sure all the ways in which it can be used. There are people in the Western Sahara Resource Watch group that monitor the shipping and watch who's coming where and which ships they're leaving and speculating as to what cargo they would be taking. It's very obvious when it's phosphate because there's a special dedicated wharf where the bulk phosphate gets loaded. But this other ship, it wasn't completely clear what was happening. But then we were told by someone that it was fish meal and we worked on that assumption. It turned out it was going to Bremen and it turns out that in Bremen, it's amazing what you learn when you do this work, has the main processing plant for fish meal in uh, Europe. So it all fitted together. Again, some brought the European Union into it and uh, parliamentarians objected and wrote about it. But I'm not completely clear where the matter lies at the moment.
1: And that's the issue, isn't it, Gabby, of taking the resources that belong to the people of Western Sahara and putting them under a label of Morocco, from Morocco. Yes. There are
5: also lots of fish imports to Spain, and uh, I am aware that a lot of Sahrawis, civilians, they go to the market in Spain, and they go to the aisle where their fish is, and they did if it's imported from Morocco. They, they would report it to the management and tell them that uh, this fish actually comes from my country. It was exported without my consent. Yeah. A lot of civilians are doing that.
1: Is there also a concern that the fish stocks are being depleted?
6: Yes, sometimes they have to enforce a period of what they call biological rest to allow fish stocks to recuperate. The Europeans also are not terribly good at observing these regulations. In, in, In the Mediterranean, for example, tuna fishing is in great peril. Western Sahara is really important because... There are cool currents and warm currents that meet. This is a very propitious environmental habitat for breeding because the fish can feed in the cooler and breed in the warmer waters. Uh, In fact, uh, the fish that are bred from those waters supply the whole of Africa and West Coast. They all come up there to, to breed. So it's a really important breeding ground.
1: And of course, Gabby, the more these countries take the fish, the less there is for the people in the occupied territory. And i imagine that the people in the refugee camps would like some fresh fish occasionally.
5: Yes, yes, definitely. Also, on top of that, the revenue that is gained from selling the fish is not going to Sahrawis, neither the ones in the occupied territories nor the ones in the refugee camps. It usually goes to Morocco and northern cities, Moroccan cities, so we are not benefiting at all.
1: And like I said, facetiously about the people in the, in the camps getting fresh fish, they wouldn't know what fresh fish was, would they? You know, the older generation,
5: like my parents, my grandparents, they knew because they were living in Western Sahara, but the younger generation, not really. The fish that they get is usually the one in Cannes. They don't even know what
6: is fishing.
1: What about the phosphate that's also been stolen? Are there any movements on that?
6: been some good news, really. It's very positive that the campaigning that's been happening for several years now is bearing fruit, and a number of companies are deciding to give up importing from Western Sahara At the end of this year, I think the contracts will run out with a company, a Canadian company called Nutrien. They've been one of the biggest importers, huge vessels bringing huge amounts of phosphate to the uh, plant in Vancouver and to their, when they amalgamated, they took over Potash Corp, which is processing in America, in Louisiana. Both of those are now declaring that they will stop their imports at the end of this year. So that's been a huge breakthrough. And here in Australia, since December 2016, as far as we know, Insatec Pivot has not had any imports from Western Sahara, but they stopped short of saying that this is for good. They want to keep their options open as... I suppose, makes commercial sense, but it doesn't make morally good sense, and it doesn't make, it's not ethical, and it's, according to many of us, it's not legal either. But we we are hoping that they will change their minds. New Zealand is now the only country left importing, apart from a a plant in uh, India, which is actually owned by the Moroccan parent company. So all eyes are now on New Zealand
1: there's been some movements in the UN lately. They had the representative of the Secretary-General. Mm. His representative was in, in Western Sahara, and the occupied territories. Yeah. The report came out in, a- in October. What was in it? Yes.
5: Well, in it the, the, the UN encourages the parties to continue to negotiate, to find a um, resolution. Something that is not positive for us Sahrawis is uh, they welcomed the Moroccan proposal yeah, autonomy in Western Sahara, which we don't agree with that. The police are doesn't agree with that. So the UN in that report they well, they think it's uh, positive. Another thing that's also included in the the report is that um the polisario should cease building any or moving any uh political offices to the freed Western Sahara, the free occupied territories of of Western Sahara. It's not positive for us because we thought that we can actually start to build the territories that are already freed and we can, um, people can start you know, to move there and live there. Do but they explain why they, they have that opinion? According to my information is that uh, Morocco complained that Polisario is not complying with the UN resolutions. Also there is a um, territory which is called Gargarat in southern Western Sahara and the Polisario were asked to move away. From my perspective as Sahrawi, it wasn't really that positive.
1: Why do they favour autonomy over self-determination, the UN, or recommending? I think, you know, the UN is really,
5: the members are mainly against the Polisario proposal, and they, they support the Moroccan proposal, like, for example, the United States, France, maybe that's why. Yeah, they favour the Moroccan proposal over the Sahrawi.
1: Well, where does that leave the people of, Western Sahara if they can't even get justice, proper justice from the UN?
6: It's very difficult and it's very sad because the UN was set up to do exactly the kind of thing that it should be doing with Western Sahara yet has been completely unable to resolve this this conflict. Morocco has various bargaining chips in its power. They tend to make life really difficult if they don't get their way. I mean, they talk, convince themselves that they are right and that this is their territory and they should be able to recover their territory, but I personally believe there's a lot of bad faith there too, and that that is a lot of propaganda really, and of course it suits them to have this country, it's a good country, it's got plenty of resources, and it extends their fairly small country. Morocco is one of the smallest of the Maghreb region. So Morocco tries very, very hard to convince anybody it can, and if it can't do it by fair means, it does it by other means. And one of the cards up their sleeve is about terrorism, and the other one is about immigration. And when a country looks like it's favouring self-determination for the Saharawis. Then they threaten to flood, open the floodgates of immigrants coming into Europe because the, the distance is very short across the Gibraltar Straits. The other thing that they can persuade the likes of the UN about is terrorism. Now, quite what leverage they've got on terrorism, I don't know. The rhetoric is good. And so they say that they will, you know, keep the terrorists at, at bay if they, get their, if they get their way. So it's very difficult. But I think, to me, that there, there is a small sliver of light at the end of the tunnel at the moment because it so happens that John Bolton, President Trump's chief of staff uh, in, in the foreign department, he... Uh, worked with James Baker some time ago and he apparently at that time decided that the Sahrawis had a really good case and he decided that he didn't like the way that the Moroccans were behaving a lot of the time. So I think that although we mightn't support him in some of his policies, on the question of Western Sahara, we have a, a grounds for hope. Uh, that he will do his best to see through self-determination. The other person who seems to me to be really keen on the Sahrawi position is is the special envoy, Horst Köhler. And he's behaving in a slightly different way from some of the other personal envoys. And he's been able to visit uh, three different cities in Western Sahara, whereas normally they would only go and spend a day in El Ayoun. He's got good contacts in Africa and in the African Union. I've got some hope that he might be able to see through a different outcome, but these talks that are taking place, there's going to be talks in uh, Geneva in December. In the past, Morocco when things got hot for them and they thought things were not going their way, they would just walk out of meetings like that. So I think that there's always an attempt by the UN to keep the Moroccans talking and not provoke them into walking out. That's why they say that the autonomy position, uh, autonomy proposal is plausible or something, there's some word like that. And everybody knows that it has It hasn't been worked out in detail. It's like Brexit. People might like the idea, but it how it's actually going to work in practice. There's no blueprint for it at all. Of course, as the Saharaways don't like it because however much freedom, in quotes, that they might have un- under uh, this s- proposal, Morocco would still have charge of the army, the security forces, the flag... Et and so they would lose their Saharui identity And they would still have to work with the people Who've been their torturers and their oppressors So it, to me it's not a viable suggestion at all
1: And talking about torturers and people being jailed There's another one, another person who was due for release Yes And what happened to him?
6: Well, yes, the day before he was due for release, they decided to give him a new sentence and keep him in prison. It's horrible for this guy. I met him in 2013 when I was travelling with a group from mainly from France and uh, Germany. Because he lives in one of the Sahrawi towns of Morocco, because Western Sahara border, was a kind of artefact in a way and there's. if you go up into the country that, that is now Morocco there are also many towns that are predominantly Saharawi and he lives in one of those. He was probably enlisted to fight for the Moroccan army at the beginning of the Sahrawi uh, conflict in 1975 and he witnessed, in fact he was told to go they they had uh, somebody else had had killed the the people but he was co- told to go and and kill all their livestock and he didn't want to do that he was came from a farming family himself and he didn't want to kill anything so he and another person with him deserted from the army but he knows where these graves are and when they were recently dug up and people from Spain identify, were able to identify the remains of the people there, he was able to show them where the graves were. And this is what Morocco is trying to keep hidden, is, is the fact of these mass graves that happened at that period of the conflict.
1: Gabby, to finish, what news do
5: you have you from home? But people are talking about, um, of course, the, the talks, the, the UN talks in December. People are hopeful that uh, something positive will come out and that uh, they will be able to finally do a referendum. And, of course, the aim is just to go back to Western Sahara. Nobody that I know wants to be in the Moroccan occupation like the autonomy. Nobody actually likes that from the Sahrawis. Yeah, another thing that I want to mention is that um, even though the UN was pleasant between brackets mm. about the autonomy, I believe that mostly the Sahrawis who live in Morocco, even the Sahrawis who were born in uh, occupied with, um, territories of Western Sahara, they grew up there, they lived with Moroccan uh, Moroccans, they still don't like Moroccans they still want referendum so I think Morocco failed to convince Sahrawis to become Moroccans even though they were born there they were raised there still yeah they don't like Morocco.
1: And what's the economic situation for the for your family in the camps how are they coping?
5: The Sahrawis in the refugee camps they rely mostly on, on the international aid yeah something that is um that is, uh, that is. My family talks a lot about is the lack of electricity, especially in summer. It gets really hot. There is no electricity, and there is no way they can use aircon. Yes, yeah, some, uh, also sometimes there is lack of um, food, some food that is lacking, and also sometimes water. What support do they get from Algeria? According to my information, Algeria does provide some aid, like you know, some food and water they are helping as much as as they can.
1: You've been listening to Gabby Allerman and Kate Lewis from the Australian Western Sahara Association. And you could be listening on your old radio, 8.55am. You could be listening digitally on 3CR. You could be streaming on 3cr.org.au and you can do that for a whole week. Or the one that other people like is podcasting, which means that the program goes to your computer and you can access it whenever you feel like. And also there is audio on demand. And there, I think i got that wrong. Audio on demand means that you can listen for up to a week and streaming means that it's in actual time. So I think I've got that right that time. And it's just on five o'clock. And this is, as I said,
7: Serrated tussock is a noxious weed that is native to South America and has impacted our farmlands and environment across Victoria. Similar in appearance to many native tussock grasses, serrated tussock may go unnoticed in both pastures and native grasslands for many years. The Victorian Serrated Tussock Working Party has assisted hundreds of landholders control this noxious weed and they can assist you by offering a wide range of information and management options for controlling this weed of national significance. Please visit www.serratedtussock.com for more information.
8: A 3CR supporter.
5: Are you 18 years and over? Have you been stopped by a Victorian police officer or protective service officer in the last 10 years? Would you like to contribute to research that aims to inform law reform and litigation strategies to prevent over-policing? Go to policestopsurvey.online for more information and to take part. That's policestopsurvey.online, a 3CR supporter.
1: When I spoke with Lee Tan, environmental activist, three weeks ago, she was optimistic about the new government's review of the Linus refinery of rare earth operations in Kwantan, Malaysia. In recent days, the Save Malaysia Stop Linus campaign members are feeling cheated for voting for the government, which ousted the former president, now facing a multitude of serious charges, due to the fact that it has made a decision to extend Linus' waste storage licence, given the hazards of its wastes. I spoke again to Lee and asked her to fill in the background to that waste. Actually,
9: there's three streams, or rather... Two streams, the radioactive waste or the waste contaminated with uh, radionuclide, which they call the WLP, which stands for Water Leach Purification Waste Stream. Now, that one is the most toxic, it's a huge you know, amount of waste. And then there's the other stream, which is non-radioactive because of of uh, the level of radionuclides, actually below regulatory level, but it still, you know, has some contaminants in it. So that stream, the non-radioactive stream of waste, their storage license expired four days ago at the end of October. So the extension of license was temporarily until... Fifteenth of February, pending the review outcome. The review was carried out mainly because of their strong satisfaction with the way licenses been granted to liners, as we might recall. Under the Najib government, which credibility is uh, called into question with all the high-profile corruption, and Najib himself has been charged and so on and so forth, so this the review is um, undertaken by the new government in response to public outcry against the way a lot of these licensing issues occur and also the lack of a safe and reliable waste management plan by the company, you know, when there is massive, in fact, you know, piles of Waste now being accumulated, it's multi-storey high, three or four storey high, just next to the plant in a peat mangrove very close to the South China Sea. In Australia, this would not have been allowed, but, you know, seeing that this is in Malaysia, it just shows the governance uh, problems in the country in in a country like malaysia where hazardous waste are being left in the open risking exposure to members of the public to the natural environment not only just for the current time period but you know for future generations as well
1: what happens when the wind blows
9: of course you know dust containing thorium uranium a whole range of other heavy metals chemical compounds that are hazardous get blown away to other places depending on the wind direction. It's not only just dust, we're talking about a tropical country with very high rainfall, particularly right now when the monsoon wind is blowing. It can potentially carry the overflow, you know, the overburden far and wide into the river. In fact, Linus dumped is wastewater through canal that flows into a natural peat land river that flows into South China Sea five kilometers downstream. Again, you know, this kind of practice is totally not up to international standard, considering that the company is producing rare earth oxide supposedly for uh, the green technology industry. So it is Actually, you know, quite an ironical situation where the waste and the toxicity is dumped into a a global South nation when the global North is, um, you know, trying to claim that they're doing the right thing by going renewable, by doing electric car and these other things uh, to tackle climate change.
1: Who is the organisation or the body that gave made the decision to extend the? the waste storage license?
9: It's uh, under the Ministry of Environment, Climate Change and Green Technology. It's a new ministry under the new government. and The minister is um, Yobi Yin. Herself is an engineer, so she's looking at things from the industrial and technical perspective, but not from the health perspective. This is where the problem lies. The whole issue around the kind of waste that linus-generated that's radioactive, instead of calling it radioactive waste because they claim that that applies only to the nuclear kind of uh, industry, is called what they call NORM, which is Naturally Occurring Radioactive Materials. So just with the twist of a new term, radioactive materials has got a different method of regulatory requirement and control. Of course, in Australia, that kind of waste that's higher than the legal limit of uh, one becquerel per gram will still be managed properly to control exposure to its radioactivity. But in Malaysia, the company has managed to convince some of the regulator that it is safe, it is low dose, therefore they need not do anything about it, even though we're talking about thousands of tonnes of thorium, which is a non-carcinogen in all the advanced industrialised countries.
1: Well, it might be naturally occurring, but it's naturally occurring when it's in the ground, not when it's taken out of the ground.
9: Well, precisely. It's been, not only that, it has gone through processes involving heated up like concentrated acids and reagent at high temperature. It should theoretically be termed as technically enhanced radioactive materials, but being the industry, they're trying to cut costs. They're trying to raise to the bottom when it comes to the management of this kind of waste because it's expensive to manage them according to established radiation standards internationally.
1: Where does this leave the three-month review?
9: Well, the review team is separate to the political leadership uh, or polit- politicians, which is a good thing. A lot now depends on the impartiality or independence of the review team, hoping that they will actually take into consideration... The health and ecological implication of letting the waste mismanaged as it is at very low standard of uh, safety and control. I mean, we still have a glimmer of hope, but politically we are aware it's going to be very challenging apart from the MPs who have been championing the cause and, you know, stop-blindness campaign back in 2011, 2012, 2013, most of the other politicians actually do not understand the issues well enough.
1: You think they'd be educated by now because it was a huge campaign against this mine?
9: Yeah, but because the issues of radiation is very, radioactive hazards and everything is quite complex, and the company has invested a lot of money putting up ads and convincing the people that it is safe, And in Malaysia, they look up to Australia and they think Australian corporations will do the right thing by the people and the environment. So in that sense, you know, it has been a very difficult battle to try and dispel the myth that the so-called norm is not normal and it is not safe.
1: Where does Mahathir fit into this equation? Yes, that's very
9: interesting. Mahathir was responsible or has been responsible for the first toxic legacy in Bukit Merah, where the Japanese company Mitsubishi was co-owning the rare earth refinery and that has resulted in very serious health issues in the community because, precisely because of the... uh, the slack manner, uh, the callous manner in which this radioactive waste has been handled. In terms of the um, extension of license, from what I have heard, initially, Cabinet wasn't going to extend the license. But because of Mahathir's push, Cabinet decided to extend it for a short period of time pending the review outcome. Mahathir is worried that by shutting down liners, it's going to send a negative message to investors. I mean, our argument is that green investor would not mind a company with such a, a poor track record of managing its toxic waste. is shut down. But, you know, Malaysia is very new in terms of this, and they are cash-strapped at the moment because uh, the country is in heavy debt as a result of the Najib, Regime squandering most of the public funds, so they're desperate for money, and they're getting a loan from Japan, which has just been approved last week. On top of that, the Japanese government is giving uh, some kind of a award to Mahathir for being an outstanding prime minister, and that's all very worrying because Japan was behind the financing of Liners to make it happen in Malaysia. Japan needed the rare earth oxide because. It did not want to be wholly dependent on China for the rare supply because, you know, historically Japan and China is always in in a very touchy relationship. Dispute over little islands and also the after effects of the Second World War, where many Chinese were slaughtered by the Japanese, and you know that sort of historical reason. So Japan needed a non-Chinese-based supplier and liners fitted into the equation and the people of Malaysia suffer the consequences and having to shoulder the burden of this kind of geopolitical phenomenon and also the greed of corporations looking for a path of least resistance to some, you know, toxic ways without having any legal repercussion.
1: Is it true that China has better standards than Malaysia with toxic waste?
9: Actually, China is now improved. That's another reason why Linus picked Malaysia. Because around the time, Linus was looking for a plant overseas because in Australia it would have taken Linus like 10 years or more to get the plant up and running, having to go through all the legal hurdles and so on and so forth. And it would be very expensive. So initially... Linus was going to build the plant and operate it in China. But because China has lifted its standard around 2009, but it became legally enforced in 2010, Linus landed up in Malaysia where there's no standard. China now has very stringent standards on, uh, specifically for the rare earth industry, and that's the world first
1: where can civil society in Malaysia go now that this has happened?
9: Well, you know, they are providing input to the review committee. Even some of the bigger environmental groups in Australia do not want to see liners moving for operation back Australia because it means that, you know, we, we're having this issue back here. Although, in my view, Australia has a, a much stronger... Uh, Environmental governance and liners should actually just do it next to the plant in Malwell where it can actually return the waste back to the my pit and do it in accordance to established standards in Australia and uh, minimize the risk of exposure to humans and the environment, unlike in Malaysia. Difficult.
1: And that's the whole issue, isn't it, that yes. the people of Malaysia with their environment are, are being sacrificed for the, yes. the profits of um, an Australian company.
9: Yes, not only that, also for the sake of the so-called green technology all around the world. So when we're talking about you know, promoting green technology to deal with climate change, we also need to look at the supply chain. In this case, you know, the supply chain is not clean or green or ethical at all. That's something that Australian civil society, environmental groups should really take on board. Otherwise, we're just pushing the pollution and emissions elsewhere. The problem hasn't been solved. It's just been pushed from the global north to the global south. This is a case of environmental injustice here.
1: Any final words? I have also spoken with a
9: Japanese professor to advocate in Japan for the Japanese government not to finance this kind of project, where you know a global South country has to deal with a toxic legacy for the sake of its needs for development, you know, advanced technology and so on and so forth, because corporation doesn't care or at least corporation-like liners, does not care about the people or the environment as long as they, they can get away with it, either through spin or through coercing a government that's not very confident or competent to allow them to pollute and, uh, and, and endanger the lives of people and the natural
8: environment.
1: And that was Lee Tan, environmental consultant, talking about the ongoing problem with Linus, and it's only going to get worse as more and more of that radioactive waste goes into the environment in Kwantan, in Malaysia. A couple of messages from Disability Day, which is December the 3rd.
8: Each year, 3CR celebrates International Day of People with Disability. I
4: want choices and rights.
8: Join us on Monday, December 3rd from 7am to 7pm for a day of dedicated programming.
5: Hear our voices on the issues that matter to us. The right to access, education, empowerment, pride, to creativity and expression, to freedom
4: from discrimination and violence.
5: Tune in on December 3rd from 7am to 7pm on 3CR.
7: join the fight
5: for the choices and rights of disabled people. <laughs> I was like, that was good, enough, yeah? Excellent, done.
8: Celebrate International Day of People with Disability at the Victorian Disability Sport and Recreation Festival. With over 30 exhibitors and three activity zones, come and try different inclusive sports, meet Paralympians, and watch the AFL Wheelchair Challenge. This is a free, accessible, family-friendly event. Monday the 3rd of December from 10 till 3pm at Crown River Walk. For more information, visit dsr.org.au. A 3CR supporter.
1: What follows is an excerpt from last Saturday's Palestine Remember program with the presenters Yusuf Nasser and Robert talking with Dahlia, a Palestinian living in Melbourne, about the situation for her family who are all in Gaza.
10: Now first, Dahlia, if you want to give us an update, what have you heard from your family in Gaza?
1: Well, yes,
8: I've heard that they couldn't sleep for the past two nights and they were really scared and frustrated because of the bombing and they're not sure if they were going to survive and we've been through this so many times before and it's really frustrating.
10: They're safe at the moment? Yes. But in the past um, 11 years we've had three previous escalations in, in the war. Can you take us through that experience, that whole journey from Israel's first disengagement but reoccupation of Gaza to today?
8: yeah well we used to from um, that yeah that the 2014 one was pretty much really bad as well the we've called them every day t- twice three times a day to make sure they're still alive it was really 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 bad like they um um his sister his sister that lives with his um parents in the same building she had to move she went to escape she got her kids and went to escape to her friend's house but nowhere was safe her friend's house their neighbor's house was bombed So she went back to her parents' house. They didn't know what to do, where to hide. They were just stuck and trapped in this war zone where the bombing was any like randomly, and we were just so scared for their lives. And we'd hope and pray.
11: I mean, we should say for our listeners that don't know, there is actually nowhere to to run to. No, there's no bomb shelters or anywhere safe.
8: Yeah, that's true because. um, and, and she thought, no, maybe it's safer if I go to this area or if I drive maybe a further half an hour to my friend's house or to my in-law's house. But then they got one as well, like their neighbor's house got one, And they were just terrified, scared, and it was a really hard time. It was such a hard time.
10: Now, Dalia, uh, I want to ask about you now here being... In a very far place uh, from them And sometimes there are no ways or means of communication Due to the electricity blockade or other reasons I'm sure in the last, like Nasa said, 11 or 12 years uh, There were times for you that you couldn't be in touch with them Talk to us about what it means for you to be far from your family When they are in war zone Yes, there was a time where they had no internet, no connection,
8: and we would just go crazy. We would just not know what to do. We would just pray. That's all we could do for them. And it's really hard, and it still is hard until today, when my um, in-law got really sick and he was in the hospital, but his son can't really... It's not as easy to get in and out to go and visit his dad and see him. Like, what if something happened to his dad? How is he going to go there and see him? It's just that, like, we're just the open-air prison, like they say. It's just... Can't get in and out as easily, and
11: it was yeah, it was really hard. I think the listeners also need to be reminded that what Israel has bombed of late, not long ago, was a cultural centre. This time, it's a hotel, but also the TV's channel, which is you know horrific as well. Yes. Non-military targets. Well, also a kindergarten yes. as well, and so part of what um, you know, I mean, they have precise weapons too. Israel brag about this, but the fact also they had a failed failed incursion during the week where they went into Gaza, as they do, and they've done it 70 times this year that we don't actually get told about, but they sneak into Gaza and they do what they need to do, which is, you know, a horrible thing. So these people don't know how to, you know, to sleep. And another part of what Israel's trying to do is, you know, what they're doing in the West Bank, is that they don't want people to feel safe. They don't want them to do this. I mean, not only do, and obviously I'm not telling you, Dalia, anything you don't know, but they obviously, they hear the the, the jets... They hear the drones. So even when things are quiet, they're not actually quiet. Israel is still doing its best to completely dehumanize and worry them because I think they also want people to fight back. I guess,
10: uh, Dalia, my question to you will be, how do you feel when you read the representation of Palestine in Australian media? All they talk about is that as if it is a war between Two equal armies and you know they, they, there's no reflection to the suffering of the oppressed people how do you feel as a Palestinian from Gaza when you read the news about Gaza in Australian newspapers
8: I quite feel a bit yeah, upset and angry a bit because it's it's not the news are not fair or they don't bring justice to the Palestinian it's always they bring it as in both sides are equal both sides are equal in power or that's how it shows so it, and it's not it's unfair it's it's really like they're not showing the truth truth like the really what's really going on there and people would never know that's why we've got like i've set up this community group with my friends is just to raise awareness and to tell people the truth that's what's really going on there every time people are shocked oh, we did not know that yeah.
11: I was going to say Go that if you um, give it a plug and also tell us when that, because um, I know you and I spoke briefly, uh, when was that inspired and the name of the group so people can actually get involved with it.
8: Yes, yeah. So we were inspired back in 2014 when the real, like, when the war on Gaza and at, like, thousands of people died and children, mums and all that. And we were all frustrated. We all needed to, like, we wanted to do something about it. We can't just sit there and watch. It's really it was really aching and we thought maybe we'd do a community group in the Casey area where I live and just to interact the social yeah, social interact with people, drawing them our Palestinian culture and other communities as well to interact with us and just to raise awareness about what's going on as well. So and a lot of a lot of people every time we get the same reaction they ask no exactly clue what goes on there.
11: Just for our listeners, it's Casey Friends of Palestine and so they can look you up. Yes, it's um, called
8: Yes, Casey, Friends of Palestine. Yep,
11: that's right. And you guys do some great work. I mean, most of the events or all of the events and you're, you know, giving a lot of your time. It's fantastic.
8: Yeah, and we participate in multicultural events. We show all the bright side of the Palestine and the culture. Yeah.
10: If if a listener wants to support or to know more about uh, your organisation, do you have a website you can give us or a Facebook page?
8: Yes, we have a Facebook page. Just um, look up Casey friends of Palestine and yeah and if you like to send any message through the Facebook page and we'll
10: reply excellent now dalia at uh, the end of our uh, conversation with you we would like uh, to give you the chance to say whatever you want to say to your people in Palestine to the Australians who hear uh, under uh, or miss or less represented news about Palestine so we'll end with a message from you
8: Okay. Um yeah, so the for the people, the Palestinian people stay strong. Don't lose hope. I mean, every time I talk to um my sister-in-law, I just I keep saying the same thing for the past, I don't know, God knows 20 years, and every time I just like just stay strong. Yeah, don't lose hope. And for the Australian people, search do more search about the Palestinians and and what's really going on there and support vote for Palestine. And help us support talk to your MPs around, try to get them to vote for Palestine as well, recognition and all that stuff. Yeah.
1: You've been listening to Dahlia who was speaking on Saturday morning on the Palestine Remembered program with Yusuf Nasser and Robert. And you can hear the Palestine Remembered program every Saturday morning in English. It's the only English speaking. Palestinian program
5: in Australia. It's 9.30 every Saturday morning. GCR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au to buy online or drop into the station during business hours.
1: And if you do drop in, this is something else that you might like to take home with you.
3: You can get your copy of 3CR's
0: book at the station during business hours at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy or online at 3CR.org.au forward slash shop.
3: Get a piece of your own history on sale for just $30. 3CR's Radical Radio is available now.
4: This is David Rovics, and you are tuned to 3CR 8:55 a.m. In Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true that if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change.
1: Late last month, a VCAT ruling approved the development of the former New Farm chemical production site in McBride Street Faulkner and it shocked and outraged residents environment groups and goes against the Moreland City Council who originally recommended the proposal that later resolved not to support the granting of a permit on grounds largely relating to the condition of the site local resident Brian Snowden is one of those involved in toxic free Faulkner which has been leading the campaign against the proposed development I spoke with Brian recently. Brian, this decision of VCAT signals the culmination of two generations of activism relating to this site in McBride Street, Faulkner. Take us back to the beginning, your mother and other residents.
7: When my family moved to Faulkner in 1957, there was very little housing, almost no amenities. Dirt roads, open drains, no sewer, and the street we moved into was McBride Street, Faulkner, which is parallel with the Hume Highway, but right down the end of Faulkner, or east of the the highway, right adjacent to the Merry Creek. At that time there was one factory that existed that had existed since about the 1930s or so. Across the road, but adja- uh, uh, adjacent up the road a little from where, I, where my family lived. And it was called Holloway's Foundry. It was a Ferris foundry. So there'd always been this one little bit of industrial operation happening there. And it was a pretty dirty operation as well. Ferris foundries, you know, um, sent off soot and all sorts of things into the air. Holloway's, I think the business got to it used by date it got sold off to someone else and they did more or less the same thing for a little while then they sold as well and unbeknownst to everyone in the suburb of Faulkner a company called New Farm which is a wholly owned subsidiary of Monsanto although Monsanto would claim otherwise that is not the case they are wholly owned even though they're separate New Farm set up and nobody knew what they were doing
2: Uh,
7: and they added to the building that was already there and uh, ex- extended the size of, the, of the, the holding by an order of magnitude. And it wasn't too long before rather horrible stench started to pervade the whole of the suburb. And in fact, they were letting off toxic plumes from the products they were boiling up. It was like a big, a big laboratory, a big boiler room, somewhat similar to, I suppose, the way a brewery operates, big vats of stuff that's boiled up. And as it turned out, later these were pretty toxic chemicals that they were making, 245T, 24D, arsenic-based sheep dip, and all sorts of pesticides and insecticides. And they were causing a lot of problems with, uh, with these fumes that they were letting off. They also had an open drain where they were running their used product or by-product into the Merry Creek behind literally an open drain full of some of the most toxic, what turned out to be the, some of the most toxic chemicals ever conceived on the planet. The upshot of all this toxic plumage was that paint started coming off houses, uh, people were getting respiratory problems. It was just invasive. The stink was just horrible. It's almost impossible to explain what the smell was like. It gets right in your nose. It's, it's sort of a metallic It's almost impossible to explain a smell as metallic, but it was sort of this metallic thing that just clung. And it clung to your clothing, it clung everywhere. It was just awful. Originally, the neighbours were told they were making hairspray, would you believe? You know, hairspray was big back in the 1950s and 60s for women. Anyway, they weren't doing that at all. And so, ultimately, the neighbourhood was up in arms. And my mother... Joined what was then the Broadmeadows Progress Association and together with the Broadmeadows and Faulkner Progress Association, she started organising and mostly it was women. They did a lot around the suburb to get things, to get amenities into the suburb, but they fought a very long campaign to have the place investigated and have it properly supervised or, and, and eventually They wanted it closed, everyone here wanted it closed down. It was just so invasive and so toxic. It wasn't the residents who actually succeeded in the end, it was actually Greenpeace, who went and did an investigation of new farms activities in Altona, where they also had a a factory where they'd been previously. And uh, they were outed in a sense by Greenpeace Uh, as was the newly formed EPA, who were doing nothing and actually licensing this company to do what it wanted. Effectively, the government licensing them to do what they want. And even to this day, the EPA license a new farm in Altona to dump their waste in Port Phillip Bay. They've actually got a license to do that from the EPA. And that's how complicated this whole thing is and the the depth of the problem that we we all face with these sorts of sites. Interestingly, last week, there was a a news item on ABC Radio National that there are upwards of 5,000 sites, toxic sites, that still remain in Altona. And they were pointing out that always these sites appear in lower socioeconomic areas, not in the rich suburbs. But Faulkner's had its own one. And what they made at New Farm in Faulkner was principally 245T and 24D, which when combined make Agent Orange. And they sold that product to the army and the government and the army and the American army. And that was used in Vietnam. So we've got a terrible history here with
1: this site. What was the outcome of the Greenpeace investigation?
7: The the Greenpeace disclosures, they went and took samples and exposed the the dumping of waste and all of that. There's actually a Peter Carey book about this, uh, but it's, it's totally inaccurate. But it sort of touches on the problem. Greenpeace managed to lobby the government. And get some government action on the thing. Of course, the government handballed the whole thing to what was then the Broad Meadows Council, which was responsible for Faulkner. After the Canada Amalgamations of Councils, we came on to Moreland. The upshot of that was that none of the history went forward into the new council. But Greenpeace lobbied heavily with the help of residents and all the information and. Um, material that residents had managed to gather and document and there was an inquiry and it was a pretty damning inquiry and New Farm was forced to close down the Faulkner site and that's all they did. They closed it down and marched away. It was another 19 years of lobbying, of pestering various governments of all persuasions before the residents of Faulkner could get the place looked at again and eventually remediated, or at least an attempt to remediate the place was made uh, between 1990 and 1993, or two or three. And a report on that was brought down in 1995. As it turned out, the standards by which the place was remediated back then w- would nowhere meet the standards that are required in today's under today's laws, but... That was what happened. It was a botched job, Uh, although they did do a lot of work. It was still uh, insufficient to clean the place up. Plus, all of the land behind, which was owned by Vic Roads, running down to the creek, which had an open drain through it, was never remediated. So that remains, we say, highly toxic land. That's open space and it's used by people at the present time for recreation. That's the history.
1: What happened to the site after that?
7: Because it had always been in private hands, the next owners after New Farm were Mitchell's Brushes. Mitchell's Brushes bought the property and used it to store flax and and jute and the sorts of things that were used for straw brooms and that sort of, you know, and, and brushes and things. They found that the site was uh, unsuitable because everything they stored in there went off, rotted, was subject to all of the chemical residues that lay in the place. So then again, it was sold off within about less than probably less than two years again to another fellow who was a sort of junkyard dog. He used to collect old cars and you know you name it, machinery, iron, steel waste. And he stored stuff in there as well, and he had a similar problem with the residues. And then it lay vacant for a very long time.
1: But Brian, during that time with those owners, weren't alarm bells being rung?
7: Yes, by residents, and to some extent still by Greenpeace, but all of the alarm bells uh, fell on deaf ears. And particularly with the EPA, who had to be kicked, had to be dragged kicking and screaming in the beginning to do anything about the place. But eventually they all had to act. And New Farm was dragged back into the picture and made to pay for the, the clean-up, such as it was, that was done. And then it had a clay cap put on it with a proviso never to be um, disturbed and only ever used for light industrial uses. Then, again, it was divided in... The property was divided in half, and it's had a succession of owners. Both the two halves have had a succession of owners over the years. Pretty well every time it's been sold, I've stood out there and said to the prospective owners, do you know what you're buying? Showed them the report that I had, the original report of the clean-up, or the so-called clean-up, And the agents, all of the estate agents who have dealt with that place couldn't care less. In fact, I was threatened many times with legal action for speaking the truth about this thing, this place, this land. And so it goes on. So the most recent owner of 102, which is the northern half, of the property. The current owners of the the, northern half of the property, 102 McBride Street, it's 102 and 100 McBride Street these days. The current owners of 102 McBride Street, they do roadworks. They've got heavy vehicles for roadworks, chip trucks, all sorts of machinery like cranes, etc., digging front end loaders, all of those things. And they are wanting to divide the the place of the property in a half yet again. So that'll be in, you know, so half a property becomes two quarters of a, a, what was it, the original property. So another subdivision. And they want to put two warehouse shells on each half, which they say is for their own use for storage. And it is still zoned as Light Industrial 3, which means there's very limited things that you can do on that, that property regardless of what is there and by way of dwellings and other amenities. The council originally was, gave them, well, didn't actually give them a go-ahead but were about to give them a go-ahead when residents again brought it to their attention with the help of one of our local councillors, Sue Bolton. And we had uh, something like a nine-month tussle with the council to convince them of the history of this place and that it was, in fact, highly toxic property, highly toxic land, and they had better proceed at their own risk. Eventually, they knocked back. They prevented the developers' ideas from being realised and said, no, we have grave doubts about this we're not going to grant you your building permit.
1: What were those grave concerns?
7: The grave concerns were that the land remained toxic, that digging into the land, and there are stipulations in the original report on the the initial botched clean-up, that there was unknown residual amounts of um, chemical toxins in the soil and in the rock bed, which is underneath, Faulkner's highly um, got a lot of volcanic rock below the surface. Some of it, some of it's quite near the surface, and those rock formations are called floaters. They float up and down according to the water table. Added to the fact that if you dig into that, you could unleash or release those toxic residues, and they would flow again into the Merry Creek, which is just behind the property, and could possibly also affect the health and well-being of residents when fumes were let off when starting. So there were all sorts of machinations, machinations about how such a a project could go ahead and the the developers went back to the drawing board and came up with all these engineering techniques for building that would not damage or go into the toxic areas that we know are there. And the council said, well, no, I don't think I, you're still going to have to pierce the cap no matter what you do, particularly to put on, to do things like sewerage, you know, which requires quite deep trenches, et etc." et cetera. So it's knocked back completely. But the owners, who were not happy with that, of course, took it to VCAT. And that's where we ended up in May earlier this year, having spent nearly 18 months fighting this once again.
1: You were there for four days I'd imagine you were there for the whole four days. What was your impression of the process and and in particular the role of the EPA in that process?
7: The process was intense it required 100% focus it was literally intense even the, the lawyers found it intense. We were lucky I managed to get pro bono work from a barrister through my lawyer he was fantastic the lawyer for the council was extremely articulate as well there was an enormous amount of evidence on the table, the reports were a mile high, the amount of material that everyone had to wade through and get their head around was just daunting. The EPA went for the lowest common denominator in all of this they said that well if it gets developed it'll get a concrete slab put over the whole of the you know over the property and that's a good fix and that's what we want so they weren't prepared to do anything about looking further into the problem least of all overseeing a new remediation of the property despite the fact that the council had produced a witness who was Part of the original report, and his evidence was damning as to the quality of the original audit and the original cleanup, and to the quality of the capping that was put on it. The EPA produced their own witnesses, who were supposed to be experts in this field, who turned out pretty well all of whom at one point had worked for the council's witness, the, the man who was so damning, but their evidence was counter. They went with the EPA on the the minimalist approach. Overall, we got a very, very good hearing. There was no way we could not have had a good hearing because of the gravity and the detail of the problem. I tried to introduce uh, notions of the extended problem, that is the property next door, which is sitting idle, uh, although it's occupied by, it has an owner and they store things there, but, Nothing's been done done about that. And then there's all the land behind, the public land, which has never been dealt with. The EPA didn't want to know about any of that. And VCAT, because of its parameters of of the, the case, would only deal with 102 itself, even though I did manage to get in a little bit of the broader, the bigger problem of the whole of the site, which includes the public land behind. But that, in the end, didn't hold water because the way VCAT works is it just deals with what it's got to deal with, and that's the the property in question itself. So we say the EPA pulled a few tricks. I think they sort of implied that if VCAT gave the okay to do a new audit on this place they would take it to court and challenge VCAT's authority to make such a ruling. They also denied the council and the residents a chance to recall our prime witness who was the witness for the, the council Had lined up. Who was the expert? The original expert in the case. He wasn't allowed to come back and and counter, make counter arguments to the EPA's arguments. So we think there's there's a a few questions there. But of course, we have no comeback now. Absolutely none. It's the decision's final and unquestionable. All we can do at this point is to try and bring to account or make those people who are responsible for the overseeing of the development accountable. Whether that happens or not is another thing. That, that is the council who are responsible to oversee the requirements in the, in the planning laws and the EPA who are responsible to police, we believe, the overseeing of any digging and exposure of toxic soils that happens.
1: What were you feeling at the end of this case in April, May? Uh,
7: exhausted. I had a, actually, within a, a week, I had another case, which is in the, uh, up the road a bit in, in our street, which is in some ways allied to this, but I won't go there because that, you know, we could get into trouble if I talk about that. We lost both of them. After the, the 102, the old New Farm site, the case, I was exhausted. Everyone was exhausted, physically, mentally and emotionally exhausted. And, of course, generally speaking, VCAT brings down a ruling sometimes within a fortnight, but certainly no longer than about six weeks. Well, VCAT's ruling didn't come down until November, so that's six months. That's how much detail and gravity this case entailed, six months of deliberations by the two members who heard the case. The senior member was an expert in the remediation of sites and had done a lot of work before he went to VCAT around Melbourne on similar sorts of sites, but particularly petrol stations, those sorts of things. The other one was a legal representative. We had the full coverage of, of the implications of this case, that is the technical details, so we had a technical details person, and the legal ramifications, so they covered themselves... In that way whereas usually if you go to VCAT you sit before one member who's an expert maybe in planning or something like that. You
1: You alluded before to the number of cases that there are around the the western suburbs and the northern suburbs.
7: 5,000 according to last week's news report.
1: This was a test case?
7: This was looking like it was going to be a test case for a lot of sites which still exist not just in the western suburbs, down Oakley Way and around that area, there are—I know for a fact—there are lots of toxic sites down there where there was a lot of industry through that area. You know, a big, fa- some rather big factories. You know, so all of the legal people on the the no side of this don't—you know—the the, don't give a permit side were pretty well certain that this could prove to be a test case if we won this case. It would be a landmark, a benchmark by which the EPA would have to step up to the plate, take responsibility for the legacy they've been handed. And it is, a, and it, 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 to be fair to them at some level, they have received a terrible legacy from past generations. Toxic sites, all sorts of industry were allowed just almost free rain and as we know, the Yarra used to be an open drain. It certainly was when I was a child. It's been cleaned up considerably, and a lot of the tributaries that feed the Yarra were the same. Some of them still are. So the, the EPA knew this could very well turn into a larger issue for them. It would snowball. So they fought hard, and I think a little bit dirty, to head this off, and they did.
1: What's the issue now for the residents because you've, we go back to the 50s and the 60s with your family and the health concerns and the paint peeling off, well, whatever? Of
7: me and the family left here. Um, I moved back here to look after my elderly mother and I have sort of stayed here for one reason or another. But. The ramifications are there are lots of young families moving into this area now it's inner a city, it's only thirteen k from the GPO, so it's, it's sort of become a little bit desirable when, in fact it was used to always be a sleepy hollow you know off to one side of the Him highway almost unknown and all unfor- forgotten. It's now becoming, there's a lot of development. We've got, like everywhere across Melbourne, we've got developers coming in, pulling down perfectly good houses and putting up dog boxes. There are a lot of people moving in here. So the problem remains that there is still a large amount of land behind this site, which was never remediated. Who knows how that's going to be dealt with. There's still the property next door, which sits there. And uh, it had some of the worst of the the toxic areas on that side of the the fence, the southern side of the original new farm site. So it's still a problem. You know, it hasn't gone away. You know, it's like putting a Band-Aid on a watermelon. You know, it's it's just a Band-Aid. We've still got the problem.
1: And there could be the problem also, as you said, it's only half the property if owners the
7: property and all the land behind
1: yes, that, that's which, the Vic Road land
7: yes, that part of it. Vic Roads had a, a, up a little bit further beyond there are a few, few more factories up further, which we also went to VCAT over that, as I mentioned before, but that's another issue. There was land behind that that runs down from a street called Hood Street. That was also Vic Roads. They were wanting to sell it off recently for something like forty million dollars to developers. Fortunately, the current Residence Progress Association, which I am also a member, we managed to get the council to do a deal with Vic Roads, and they purchased that land. So ratepayers have bought that land. But it ends just about where the toxic site starts. So you can imagine housing right behind a toxic site. It just wasn't going to happen, you know. But then you go down a little further south behind that site, the site where New Farm occupied and that's part still owned by Vic Roads. The reason VicRoads owned that in the first place is because they bought it back in the 1960s they were, they were thinking about putting a, a freeway in there along the creek to bypass the Hume Highway, you know how they do it, uh, how they've done it in various places like Gardner's Creek and Mooney Ponds Creek have got overpasses and freeways beside them, It's you know it's open land. However that's still there and it's, it's going begging but that I think there are a few people who, deep down, they know that that is toxic. I've certainly let Vic roads know, uh, and the Department of Environment, Water, Land, Water, and whatever they're called, they've got an ac- a new act uh, acronym these days. I'm, I'm not sure of it. They also know the heads in there know that that land was never remediated, so it sits. But what do we do? We don't know what to do. We just you just keep fighting one way or the other. What we will be doing, though, is continuing to monitor how the place is developed and call out the authorities if they're not doing their part in overseeing the process.
1: Okay, Brian, a job well done. You didn't get what you wanted in the end, but it was a a big fight and you did your best.
7: We did our best, yeah. A lot of people involved. I I thank them all. Thank
8: you, Jan.
1: And that was Brian Snowden from Faulkner, from Toxic Free Faulkner, talking about the long battle. And as he said, it won't end there because they have to make sure that the right thing is done once the developers start doing what they want to do on that site. But that's all for me for today. I will be back next Tuesday at 4. Done by Law will be here in just a few moments, so I'll go out with... Paul Kelly. Bye for now.